From St. John's Gospel, Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, friends. Well, today we are finally going to wrap up our summer sermon series. I can never say that. Summer sermon series about the life of David and the various cast of characters that surround this guy known as Dawid. That's how you say David in Hebrew. Because we didn't just look at David, right? We looked at David as the primary character, but there's other people in orbit around him. Saul and Jonathan and Absalom and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. I love that. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed the miniseries. I've enjoyed preaching it. I know Father Switz and Father Gritter have also appreciated and had a good time with the historical narratives of the Old Testament. They're a lot of fun to preach. Um, And if you missed any of them and you want to go back and look at them again, they are available on the website, on podcast, on Facebook. You can't miss them. (laughs) So if you want to go back and check them out, I I encourage you to do so. There's a lot of meat to take away. Um, But the thing I want to talk about today is we put the bow on the sermon series and put it in the drawer until three years from now. The thing I want to take away from this whole series in our sermon series about David is that it's really not about David. But rather, it's about God, right? Working in the lives of regular, ordinary people like David. Because David is essentially every man, and I mean women too. He's just this, he's a, David's character is not unlike anybody else in this room. He is a, a mixture of saint and sinner, right? He's a mixture of hero and coward. He is a, he is a, a Uh, ruddy and handsome, and he's also a cold-blooded killer. But here's the thing. Here's the takeaway. God pursued him. God never gave up on David. The Bible, you know, the Bible says something. This is the main point for today I want to dive into. You know, the Bible is not, the God of the Bible is not just the God out there, transcendent, right? No offense to my AA friends. I know AA has helped a lot of people. It was started by two Episcopal priests. Go figure that, right? But, uh, but, you know, the AA, they talk about a higher power. Well, okay, but higher than what? Oh, I don't know. Okay. And does this higher power, like, have a name? Or does it talk to you? Does it communicate with you? Does it actually care about you at all? Or is the higher power just like the force in Star Wars, where you need Yoda to kind of get you over the finish line, right? The the, the point I want you to see here today, and you see it in David, and we're going to see it all through the sermon, is that the God of the Bible isn't just out there. He's not just a higher power. He actually cares about you, specifically. And actually, God, if you look at the history of the God of the Bible, which is the God we're talking about this morning, the God of the Bible is intimately engaged and involved in the lives of his people. In your life, higher power, nonsense. God actually cares about you. I mean, think about it in your own life, right? I've got three daughters, many of you know. They are, uh, they are both the, the blessing in my life and also the biggest stressor. If you've got kids, you know what I mean. But their, their names are Amy, Kate, Catherine, and Grace. I mean, could you imagine if they referred to me as their higher power, their provider of all things financial, the payer of student loan debt, 
the guy who pays the car bills. No, they don't define me in functional terms. They define me in relational terms. When I'm in relationship with them, when they, when they, are in, in a, when they rejoice, I rejoice. When they suffer, I suffer. Know why? I'm in relationship with them. That's the reason. Just like God is in relationship with you. He really is interested in your life and David's life and Uriah the Hittite's life and Saul's life and Absalom's life and all these characters we've been talking about. The thing I want you to see this morning, and this is the deep dive for today, the God of the Bible is a God that dwells with us. To use Jesus' word specifically, abides. I'll get to that in a minute. The God of the Bible is not just out there, man. He dwells with us. And I want to talk about that in two points this morning. First point, how God dwells with us. Uh, the first thing I want to say, I'll show you sort of briefly, historically, that God has always dwelled with his people on earth. God has always been a God with a physical, substantial thing in this earth. He's not just a higher power. And then secondly, we see that Jesus offers us the real, true presence of God in his body and blood. So first thing I want to look at here, I'll be, well, I won't be brief, but I'll be succinct. Uh, <laughs> I always say that I'll be brief, and I never am. Uh, the first thing I want you to see, this is so important to take away from this morning, that God has always been present with his people. One thing you see when you read the Bible is that the God of the Bible is always there. He's always there with us. I mean, and again, real fast here, um, in, in, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, before Adam and Eve were, were, were cast out of the garden, Adam and Eve would walk in the Garden of Eden and talk to God like I'm talking to you. It was a relationship. It was an intimate, personal relationship. God was present with them in situ. I'm not going to get into this too deeply today. I've talked about it before. You know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all that stuff. Great stuff. Great fodder for sermons, but not today. The point I want you to see for this morning is that God had a relationship with Adam and Eve. After the fall, you see, after they're cast out, God doesn't ditch them. He's not just a higher power. He, no, he's actually with God. He's with his people in a couple of different ways. He is in the, the fire during the day and the fire at night and the cloud in the day when they're walking through the desert after they leave Egypt. God has a tent called the Tent of Meeting where God meets with Moses and communicates with Moses and Moses comes out of the tent and he has this sort of shine to him from God's holiness. He's got to cover his face. But the point is, God is there, really present in the Tent of Meeting. Then again, later on, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, a physical thing, that Moses then puts into a physical thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which is basically a gold box, right? And the, ten, the, the, uh, the tablets of the Ten Commandments go in the Ark of the Covenant, and wherever the Jews go, the Ark goes first. The point I want you to see here over and over and over again in the Old Testament is God is not just a higher power, but a God who dwells with us locally and really and physically with his people. The Ark. Let's talk about that Ark for a sec. The Ark of the Covenant um, was where God dwelled, but it was also dangerous. You ever, see the, you ever see the Raiders of the Lost Ark? 
Remember that? 1981 that came out. I was like, I wasn't even in high school yet, I don't think. No, it's a freshman in high school. Uh, Ark of the Covenant, I mean, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? If you know the scene at the end where the Nazis have captured the Ark of the Covenant and they go to lift off the lid and Indiana Jones, the holy Anglican that he was, says, my gosh, Mar Marion, I think that was her name, is his uh, femme fatale there. I think he says, don't look at it, Marion, don't look at it. You know the scene, right? And then the Nazis, they pull the cover off and the guy looks into it looks into the presence of God. You couldn't even touch the thing. And he looks in there, and he says, it's beautiful. And then he explodes into bloody Nazi dust, right? Special effects are terrible, right? Awful. But Indiana Jones says something actually pretty profound. He says, look, he says, Marion, you know the scene, there's like wind and rest around, and angels flying around, seraphim flying around, and he's got it, they're tied up to a pole, and he says, don't look at it. Don't look at it. Why? Because, friends, you and I cannot look at the face of God, the presence of God, and live. It's too dangerous. A couple of more examples, and I'll move on. There's a story in the Old Testament of a guy named Uzzah. Poor Uzzah. Uzzah. The, the Ark of the Covenant is on the cart. They know, don't touch the thing, and certainly don't look in it. That's God's presence. It's on an ox cart, and the ox stumble, and Uzzah goes to save the ark. Bam. Good night, Uzzah. He dies. Told you, don't touch the cart. Don't touch the ark on the cart. When the Philistines capture the ark of the covenant, Father Gritter talked about this a few weeks ago, they capture the ark of the covenant. They take it. And what happens to them? They get boils and sores and tumors. Yeah, God is with us. God is present. His holiness is overpowering. And so we read this morning in sort of the final act of the story of David, the, the high water mark of the Jewish theocracy. Solomon, King Solomon, builds a temple, this great, big, magnificent, beautiful building, which got blown up in AD 70 by the Romans. Another point, but he built this enormously beautiful building, and into the building goes what? the Ark of the Covenant, carried on poles by the Levites. That way it was supposed to be done. And it's put in, it is put in the, how does the English say it? The most, most holiest place, right? It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant is put in the temple. Careful, don't touch it. They place it in the Holy of Holies, which is, a, which is an area of the temple, kind of like this building, actually. Um, would be, the Holy of Holies would be here, and then right there where the altar gate is, and this is done intentionally, by the way, churches are designed like the first century temple, the first temple. The ark would be, where the gate would be there, and in, between the Ark of the Covenant and where the people would worship, there was a curtain, four inches thick. And the Ark of the Covenant is placed in there, and, and uh, First King says that the or the space behind the, uh, the Holy of Holies is filled with smoke. So much smoke that the priests can't even operate. I've been a priest for 20 years, friends. I've never been around so much incense I couldn't operate. The point is, though, that the presence of God is so strong that even the priests who are there, the Levitical priests that have carried it in there on poles, they can't even take it. And so what, they, what Solomon does is he puts up a curtain, a four-inch wide curtain, it's ornately ordained, ordained, adorned curtain in front of it, and he protects, it's a, a barrier from the people to the ark, not to protect the ark from the people, but to protect the people from the ark. 
See my point? God's presence is local. It's real. It's physical. But it's dangerous. So Solomon has created this place where God, people, God's people can come and worship him from a distance. They can worship him. They can pray with him. They can pray to him, and they do. But there's still a problem. Do you see it? There is still distance. This is my first point, that God has always been a God that resides with his people. He is not an abstraction. He is not the higher power. He is God who dwells with his people then and now. And even in Solomon's temple, the high watermark of the Jewish religion, there's still a problem, a barrier, a wall. It's an intractable problem. Do you see it? That God desires a relationship with us, and yet because of his holiness, we can't approach him. So what is God to do? And that brings me to my second and final point. Fast forward a couple thousand years, and you see another son of David, not Solomon, but Solomon's, I don't know, great, 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 great grandson. Do the math. I don't know how long. And this, this son of David, this great, 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 great grandson of Solomon, his name is Jesus. He was both man, like you and I, and also he was God. And his job was to close the gap, to reconcile this relational distance between sinful people and a holy God. His job was to do what the temple could only approximate. How did he do it? Well, in Matthew chapter 27, we read about Jesus' crucifixion on the city outside of where the temple was in Jerusalem. And we read about the crucifixion of Jesus, and as he hangs on the cross, he is completely separated from God's presence. He is essentially in hell for you and for me. And on the cross, he bears the full weight of all human sin. And under the weight of human sin, my sin and your sin and all humanity's sin, Jesus Christ exclaims right out of the Psalms written by David, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus dies on the cross to pay for the sins of the whole world. And then Matthew says this. And Jesus, Matthew 27 and 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, it means listen, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There is no longer a curtain that separates the people of God from God's earthly presence because Jesus, friends, has reconciled us to our Father by paying for our sins in our place. We say this in Eucharistic prayer every Sunday. I'll say it in a few minutes. To make us worthy to stand before you, Jesus Christ restores our relationship to God. And so the point I want you to see here, and I'll move on, is when you feel unworthy, when you feel guilt, when you feel shame, just remember something really important. Jesus died to take that from you. Let him have it. And it gets even weirder. So not only does Jesus reconcile us to God the Father, where we can now experience God and live, it gets even stranger. He says in John's Gospel today, if you eat my flesh, that you is second person plural, y'all, If you guys eat my flesh and drink my blood, you abide 
in me and I in you. You know, I've never used the word abide in a sentence ever. Hey, Lee Rogers, you want to go abide with me at the walking tree on Thursday at 4.30? You in? I've never used the word abide. The word abide, it's it's an archaic word. I've never used it. Maybe you do. Okay, fine. But the word is actually a super important word in the Greek. It's the word meno. And it means, like you might think it means, it means to spend time with somebody, to be close to somebody, to be in a relationship, a very, very, very close relationship with somebody, a personal friendship and love with another person. It means to abide, meno. It means to live next to them. Jesus' words in John chapter 6, when he describes the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, he says, look, this is astounding. When you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you are present in me and I am present in you. Just as God was present with us in the tent of meeting, in the flame by night and the cloud by day, in the tent of meeting, in the ark of the covenant, Jesus tells us, You ain't seen nothing yet. When you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'm actually present in you. That God is locally and really present in some supernatural way in the Eucharist. In fact, you may not know this. We keep the consecrated uh, body and blood of Christ in that little box right there. Janie. (laughs) And it's got a red lamp on there. Do you see it? That lamp is lit. Maybe you can't tell. That lamp is lit. That comes right out of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. In the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, there was a pot that would flame constantly, signaling God's presence. That's what that red light means, that Christ is present in the Eucharist, in that ombre, in that tabernacle right now. So let me just challenge you with this. If people will say to you, people will say to you, how do you grow in your faith? How do, you have a clo- How do I have a close relationship with God? It's, the, it's what every human heart craves. Everything you do in this life is to become closer to God, whether you know it or not, or admit it or not. Everything in your heart craves this relationship with Jesus. He created us for that. How do you become closer with God? Well, you can read your Bible more. That's a good thing. You can pray more. That's a good thing, too. You can come to church and listen to all my sermons back to back. You can binge listen and watch my sermons. That's a good thing too. But actually, what does Jesus actually say about how you become close to him? I'm going to tell you what he says. You ask him, he says, if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, I abide in you and you abide in me. You and I, you might even say in some sense, become little arcs of the covenant, with God's presence within us. I mean, think about it. We're physical beings. If you want to have, I mean, you take vitamins, you eat, you know, your diet. You, if you want something to be taken into you physically, you, you consume it, you eat it, or you drink it. Jesus is saying, look, <laughs> the God of the Bible is so desirous of relationship with you and so earthy and so here. He says, when you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, Friends, the Eucharist is the closest you will ever come to God. It is God's presence on earth even now. Because to abide with him means to rest, remain, continue with, be persistent with, to endure, to be strong, to be fearless, to be unstoppable. Why? Because we consume his body and his blood. In his blood, there is life, he says. 
and his life for you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for David, the man who, despite all of his shortcomings, you never gave up on. We thank you, Lord, for your earthly presence in all of its forms, all of which point to the Eucharist, which we have with us even now. Help us, Lord, to abide in you, to trust in you, to rest in you, to have a boldness and courage and fearlessness, knowing that you are with us. In Jesus' name, Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.